There are over 570 federally recognized tribes in the United States. So as I sit here as a Wichita, Kiowa, Caddo adopted Oglala woman, I cannot speak for the Navajo Nation or their particular. So really understanding the diversity uh, that exists within Indian country at big firms can be helpful. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker. We are the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an end-to-end legal talent management solution that's technology-enabled, and we've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry, and occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. Thank you for joining us here today uh, for the 20th episode of The Law in Black and White. We will self-congratulate ourselves on this uh, milestone. Thank you. John? We're thrilled to be joined today by Tasha Friday, lawyer and national director of tribal programs for the nonprofit Friends of the Children. Tasha is an enrolled member of the Wichita and affiliated tribes and is Kiowa, Kado, and Hunka Oglala Lakota. She earned her Juris Doctorate with a certificate in American Indian Law from Oklahoma City University School of Law and a master's degree in human resources development from Webster University. Friends of the Children is a national nonprofit creating generational change by empowering youth facing multiple systemic obstacles through relationships with a professional mentor called a friend. They have revolutionized the youth mentoring field by creating the first and only long-term professional mentoring program in the country. They recently partnered with the Lakota community in South Dakota to open the He Sepa chapter their first culturally specific site created in partnership with an indigenous community. At the end of our conversation with Tasha, we are very fortunate to be joined briefly by Mikeisha Anderson-Jones, Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer at Millbank LLP, to reflect on our discussion. Tasha, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really looking forward to today's discussion. We think our audience will be extremely well-informed and benefited from it today. With that run-up, let me ground us all, uh, and, and our audience in particular, in some uh, statistics and, and give a little bit of background for the conversation we're going to have here today. For starters, uh, Native Americans are underrepresented in the legal industry, and that's at all levels. Despite accounting for over 2% of the U.S. population, the Law School Admissions Council reports that Native American students accounted for only 0.3% of those admitted to U.S. law schools in 2020. In big law, the levels of representation dip even further. Now reports that Native Americans or Alaskan Natives accounted for only 0.18% of associates and partners in 2021. A comprehensive study of Native American attorneys conducted by the National Native American Bar Association in 2014 found that Native Americans pursuing or practicing law faced unique barriers and pressures. When asked about barriers to attending and succeeding in law school, respondents cited financing law, navigating the application process, 
and creating the social networks necessary for getting the information and resources to be successful in law school. The report also found that in the workplace, a significant percentage of Native American attorneys experience demeaning comments, harassment, and discrimination. Additionally, a lack of understanding about how Native American issues can give ways to feelings of isolation and a lack of inclusion for themselves. This is compounded only if DEI programs don't uh, appropriately include extending the definition of inclusion to Native American lawyers. Tasha will discuss with us today these challenges encountered by Native American lawyers and how the legal industry can better include and retain Native American lawyers from the start of law school to the end of their careers or throughout the length of their careers. And then Mykesha will help us on the playback from the perspective of a chief diversity officer of a big law firm in contextualizing some of this. Tasha, thanks for uh, hanging with us while we grounded the audience through all that uh, reading. We're, we're excited to have you. And so our audience knows I am on the National Board of Friends with the Children, and that's how Tasha and I became acquainted. And I think there's something, Tasha, in the background of our work on Friends of the Children that overlaps with the conversation we're going to have today. But I wonder if you might uh, mind sharing a little bit further about your background why you became a lawyer, and then Friends of the Children. But I think in stopping in there, you also returned to uh, live and work on Native American lands. And just if you could share with the audience uh, about those journeys and the whys uh, for some of the transitions you've made. Absolutely. Hello, how are you all? My name is Tasha Friday. My spirit name is Sacred Medicine Circle Woman. I'm Wichita from the Waco Band, Kiowa, Caddo, and also Hunkal Glala Lakota. And thank you so much for that introduction and inviting me to be a part of your podcast today. I think it's a great opportunity to share with relatives um, in the legal field all over um, some of the unique experiences that we have as legal professionals um, and being indigenous. You know, I think to start that, you know, wanted to introduce myself in my tribal way because that's who I really am, right? I have these different letters and notes behind my name, but th this is who I am, a mother, a daughter, a tribal citizen. And so today I'm calling, uh, as Brian mentioned, I live and work on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. So I'm calling from the ancestral territory of the Oglala Lakota people. Um, and that's where we're starting the Friends of the Children Hesapa chapter. And I'll go more into that later. But to your first question, Brian, why did I enter the legal field? As Indigenous folks, we love to tell stories and there's always a good one, right? So as the story goes, I was raised by my Native American grandmother. Uh, my parents were teenage parents. My father's African-American, my mother's Native American. My grandmother raised me. Um, she was an amazing woman, both an Indian rights activist, civil rights activist, really exposed me to a lot of different things growing up and was, was my mentor, my greatest mentor in showing me what justice and equity looked like. I always say she was a woman before her time. I was born in the 80s. At that time, there were not uh, a lot of books with characters that looked like me. She was very intentional. Before she gave me a book, she would color the people brown and make them have black hair so that I would see people like myself mm. in literature, even when it didn't exist. So when I was about five, she wanted to take me. There was a Native American woman arguing in federal court, and she was very intentional in taking me to see that so that I could picture that and what that was. 
and who takes the five-year-old to federal court, my grandmother. Um, and they always say, like I said, as the story goes after that day, I was like, I want to do that. That is what I'm going to do. Um, and so it was, it was very impactful for me. Um, and then just along the lines of, you know, growing up, going to protests, I always tease and say, you know, when I started that journey with my grandma, she used to give me a handful of quarters and a, a list that said, this is who you call if I go to jail, right? And then it became phone cards and those kind of things. So that's kind of the childhood that I grew up in, you know, watching her go to um, the UN to testify and be an international observer in Chiapas, Mexico. So really great things that I got to see an Indian woman do in my own household, but very much exposing me to, to what justice and equity and equality look like for all people. And so that's kind of where the drive came. So I always knew that I wanted to be um, in the legal field, go to law school. And there was just never a right time. Life kind of took off. I, I was married. I had two small children, was traveling around the country as a military spouse. So there just wasn't a right time. And then as my grandmother made her journey um, to be with our ancestors right at a time when I was moving back to Oklahoma, which is my home state, and that just seemed like the right time. It seemed like a way to pay homage to her, to fulfill my dreams and the goals and the path that she had blazed for me. And so um, really pursued only the law schools in Oklahoma and um, was accepted to those law schools. Um, but to your other point, uh, my decision really came down to finances. Um, I still was a mother of two children and had some family obligations and went with the law school that was going to have the least financial impact on me long term. Yeah. And then uh, just, just the last part of the question, I know uh, John John's going to jump in here. Uh, the Friends of the Children's Journey. So you were back, you finished law. Why join you know, Friends of the Children? And you talked about some of the work that you and, and we as friends are going to be doing there. I wonder if you could just uh, share a little perspective on that. Sure. So um, during law school, I, I started an internship with a training and technical assistance center um, through the Department of Justice. And we provided training and technical assistance to tribal um, youth healing to wellness courts and tribal youth programs. And that position just kind of took off and eventually became the assistant director of uh, the training and technical assistance center that provides that throughout Indian country. So I have a, a background in tribal youth programs and juvenile healing to wellness courts, which are essentially drug courts that incorporate our culture. And so I'd done that for quite a while. And so looking across Indian country was very familiar with just from the proposals, right, of the impacts that are happening in different regions on our youth um, in Indian country. And I've looked at a variety of different interventions and, and you know, some are evidence-based, some are practice-based, but I was an American Express Engine fellow, and I met my colleague, Erica Reed, who was working for Friends of the Children as a, a program director. And she started telling me about her program. I was looking for a change, and I had never heard of a paid professional mentor. And I was like, that's amazing that someone's job is to, you know, interact with youth in a very positive way. And so it was very exciting to me. And then I learned they were wanting to expand into Indian country. And I was like, well, this is amazing because how much more effective can this very well evidence-based model work in our communities when it's grounded in our culture and our life ways, you know, because we know those are the greatest intervention and prevention factors for our youth is their identity. And so I was very excited to join Friends of the Children and see what we can 
we can create throughout Indian country using both the Western and Indigenous spaces of knowledge to support children and families. So it was really exciting to me. It's awesome. Thank you. So we touched on it at the beginning, and then you picked up on one of the points, Tasha, which is the obstacles and barriers that are often facing Native American lawyers who are people who want to pursue the practice of law. You told a very personal story about your grandmother taking you to federal court, and you know I can understand completely how that could be life-changing from a five-year-old's perspective. What do you see as some of the obstacles, and what can law firms do to try to overcome them? Sure. So I think one of the greatest obstacles may not even be tangible, but it is something that that programs like Friends of the Children and, and other good work that's happening really address, and it's giving young people the freedom to dream. I don't think for a lot of our young people, regardless of if they're Indigenous or, or a young person of color, they don't have the opportunity to even fathom that this is something they can do. This is something that's out of reach. And so I think giving young people that um, is super important. How, how do law firms do that? Not exactly sure, um, but maybe that's just exposure, you know, offering their time to go into these programs or schools and put a human face to what a lawyer is, what a judge is. And a lot of our, our interactions with the judicial system, right, the legal system are not positive as people of color. So how can we change that narrative and that lens? Um, I think the other piece is that I'm the mother of a freshman. She's at the University of Denver, freshman in college. She's at the University of Denver. And um, it's a private university, um, predominantly white institution. Um, and so I've seen a lot of youth, both in her cohort and, um, you know, younger relatives, it starts at that undergraduate level. We've got to get our people through undergrad before they can even consider law school. So what are we doing to reach back, provide resources and pathways to help them get to the point where they can apply to law school? When I was in law school, super active, just who I am. I was president of all the things, uh, particularly the Native American Law Student Association, served on the National Native American Law Student Association board. And I created a pipeline event in Oklahoma to just familiarize folks with what the process is to get into law school. I'm very much privileged in that you know, my grandmother had an eighth grade education. So uh, when I, she always, you know, promoted education and showed me through her own experience, getting a GED, then an associate's and finally a master's degree that it can be done, right? Despite all obstacles, but showing people what that looks like, showing people the difference in an LSAT score. What is an LSAT, right? And, and how do we adequately prepare for that and the small differences in um, score and how that can impact scholarships. So just a variety of things. And I think that LSAT prep is huge. Um, I was able to pay out of pocket for a prep course. Um, a lot of Indigenous students might, may not have that. So maybe that's one funding stream or resource pool that firms could contribute to to help Native uh, representation increase in law schools. You mentioned going in and um, putting a face to the profession. That's something that we're pursuing with young people across the board to try to get them to understand the what kinds of uh, opportunities actually exist so that at an early enough age where it can influence their uh, academic trajectory. Um, and uh, I would say that, just speaking personally, I'm sure I speak for Brian, if we can come out and speak to um, any of the people that you think would benefit from hearing about this, love to do it. Yeah, 
Thanks for that, John. Um, and so, you know, I guess that does move us into the to the to the pipeline and retention issue for uh, Native American people in law. But Tasha, you, I think you centered us correctly, right? And that it starts before law school, um, and it's uh, an undergraduate, uh, and it's also uh, making sure that enough people can get to the you know the undergrad. One of your experiences, you talked about um, being in youth court and some of, you know, the 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 drugs or, or other issues that we're seeing um, on some of the Native American lands. And so I wonder, you know, maybe these are just thoughts in general, both we uh, as big law, uh, whether that's corporations or law firms, or as uh, John has said, we've got plans that we're working on uh, specific uh, on, on pipelines. So I wonder if, if we could just broaden out the, you know, sort of the, the, the discussion. Uh, and then as people do make their way into the profession, what kinds of things can we do to foster good environments so that they'll want to stay and thrive? And, you know, I love the way that you started it, right? And so it was an inclusive gesture, an inclusive message, because you were speaking in the language, which invited some more people in and that sort of thing. So I'll stop there. I just, uh, you know, pipeline, and that can be a big question. And then once people are in the professional ranks, what can we as employers do to make sure that they, you know, that they stay around and that they can flourish? Absolutely. I think, you know, the just the concept of Native American law is even if if I weren't an indigenous person, I'd, I'd be into it. Right. Because it touches on every aspect of the law and just reiterating that to both native attorneys and non-native attorneys like this is a great space to work in because, of course, we need allies as well. Um, there aren't enough of us to do all the work that needs to be done. So there's that piece as well. And in working with indigenous communities and indigenous folks, I think there's this relational connection to the work or to, you know, that that needs to happen in a very different way for a, a comfort level, right? Uh, two of my favorite professors in law school, one was African-American and one was indigenous, just happenstance, right? But then also not, we could relate in a different way. Uh, you know, both of those women I still talk to and consider mentors now, um, they gave me space. Uh, they gave me space to cry, to, you know, get their counsel, to celebrate all of those things. So I think within law firms, if we have those people and make connections and can make those connections. It's super important because, you know, the law school I went to was a private law school, again, predominantly white institution. Lovely. It was the best fit for me. You know, it was a smaller community. They knew my children. I mean, it was, it was a welcoming community and a really the right space for me. And they supported the things that I wanted to do. So I, there was the Dean's Pro Bono Fellowship and you, you know, you could go work wherever you wanted, nonprofit type of thing. No one had ever gone into a tribal community and they were very hesitant. I wanted to come here to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which statistics will tell you is one of the poorest counties in the country. Um, I would argue that's also one of the richest places in the country as far as cultural, spiritual connection. But this is where I wanted to come. I have strong connections with this community and really made my own way and worked on the reservation for the summer to give back to a community that's given me so much. And so creating spaces like that, I think, you know, um, even within big firms, um, creating time and space for tribal specific pro bono work um, would be amazing. It would fill indigenous lawyer spirits in a different way um, than, than just, you know, just the, the big firm work. Um, and I think broadening horizons when we create spaces like that and opportunities, um, there are some 
there are some heavy hitters in Indian country, right? That that are is their firm work, and we know their names. I, I won't go into them here, right? We know their names. I, I, but honestly, when I even even as a law student, I was faced with a choice one summer, and it was kind of, do I do this pro bono work in a tribal community, or do I go with this big firm? And I had the offer, but I chose the other path because that was speaking to my spirit in a different way. Now maybe had this big Indian law firm offered me something that fed my spirit, then I would have gone there. Um, so I think there there are just a lot of different things, but I did also want to touch on that that we need allies, right? I mean, it, there's so many levels of law that, that are intersecting tribal communities and sovereign tribal nations. It's it, it can be overwhelming and our people expect us to know it all, right? right. <laughs> and, and you can't know it all. Um, I wonder if I'll just do a quick follow-up before uh, before John comes in, and it's really um, building on something that he talked about in the pipeline and that I talked about in the in the run-up to this, uh, and the intersection of what your grandmother uh, did for you, and uh, you know, thank God, right? Um, because when we and, and this isn't just a Native American thing, I think when you um, black demographic Latinx and you talk to people about what's their spo- first exposure uh, sometimes with the law, and it'll be in a uh, you know, in a, in a criminal or adversarial kind of uh, kind of experience, and that's not versus you got to go see this argument, and you were lifted up, and you were inspired. If we want to talk about systemic change, how you know, again, uh, tying it back to what John was saying, what can the legal industry, which would include firms like ours, um, uh, firms like Mikeisha's uh, that represent Big Law uh, and Millbank, the law uh, the law schools in creating that exposure. Cause as John and I talk about this, you know, there's an analogy here to STEM, right? Like 20 years ago, they said, Oh, well, we don't have enough diversity in technology. And so, okay, well, let's focus on science and math. And we did. And I think we've come a long way. Do you have thoughts on what that could be for the, you know, for the legal field? Sure. I think, you know, I think those pipeline events are important. And we see that across Indian country, especially in law schools um, and firms that that are really grounded in, in the indigenous workspace. But again, the expansion of that. And I think that you know, whether it's a summer program for young people, all things youth speak to my heart. And so um, I think the younger, the better. When uh, my youngest daughter was, I think she was in like seventh grade, maybe sixth grade, I sent her to the local technology school did a summer legal program and they they got to run a court and she was so excited one day she said mom mom i i came home and i almost made the witness cry and i was like that's my girl <laughs> right right get that killer instinct going early i like it <laughs> right and so i think we can invigorate at very young ages and i know it it probably you know i i think when we do things in a very corporate giant um, you know, sphere, we want these immediate impacts, but that's where we start our, our very young, very community driven, you know, whether we're going into school, one of the greatest experiences that I had during high school was being in mock trial, right? We getting to see different kinds of cases, getting to work with lawyers and judges who were volunteering their time to teach us about the rules of evidence, to sit there and judge us in our performance, but also judge us in our understanding of the law. All of those things were super impactful to me. And I think we can do that. And I know it like, again, I think we just, we have to start earlier. It's just like the friends of the children model. We start from ages four to six. I'm not saying four to six for this, but much younger than after you, you, graduate from undergrad and are like, now what? And so I also am very big, I'm a very big proponent on education and 
those types of things, whether it's formal education or these community events as an investment. I think if we um, really frame it in that way, people are much more willing to buy in and be a part of it um, because we're investing in these children, we're investing in these communities, we're investing in the long term of what's going to happen um, as a result of the good work that we're all trying to do. Can I, Tasha, come back to mentorship? You touched on it when you talked about the two professors who were your lifelong still mentors. And of course, Friends of Children is founded on the concept of mentorship, empowering youth through relationships with professional mentors in that case. Here, my question is, first, how important is it to the Native American perspective, law students and lawyers? And secondly, um, do you think we should be seeking to involve mentors who may not have had much exposure to Native American prospective law students to date, but both sides could benefit from establishing that relationship? Absolutely. I feel like there's a lot of questions in there, but I gotcha. Um, so I think it, even in the context of my work with Friends of the Children, one thing that we're trying to express um, into this very well-established Western model is that mentorship is it, it, it's in direct alignment with um, Native American indigenous value systems. So what we are relating that to is our extended kinship systems. You know, we, in the Lakota way of living, we have um, a saying and it's mitaku yeo yasin, we're all related. And really putting that as an umbrella on everything that we do. And I think that's what mentorship is. In our traditional ways of knowing and being, we never had orphans because you always said everyone was your auntie, everyone was your uncle. You had all of these grandmothers. Um, even when I was in elementary school, they're like, your grandma died again? Yes, I have a bunch of grandmas, right? Like all of these things. Um, so I think in, in that sense, mentorship is super important because we're making relatives. These are, you know, I would honestly consider those two law students or, or law professors as mothers or aunties to me because they were that supportive of the work that I was doing. That being said, you know, mentorship, I do think it is a two-way street. Um, you know, we're mentoring each other. So I, uh, as part of the Alumni Association for my law school, I was a mentor. They started a mentoring program. And of course, I'm you know, first to sign up. And my mentee was a non-native young man. Um, and but he, was, he kind of had an interest in Indian law. And by the end of our mentorship, we had bonded so well, had connected him with folks. He was moving to D.C., connected him with some folks that I knew. They wrote an article about us. Yeah, thank you both. Um, in any one firm, the numbers are going to be uh, really small. Um, both you and John were just talking about mentorship models and that sort of thing. So part A is how do we better understand, right, and appreciate the experience of, a, say, a Native American attorney without tokenizing them, right? Because there's there can be that thing of like, hey, you know, I'm the uh, I'm I'm the saver. I'll tell you I'll tell you what's best for you. And then I wonder if we just put a little bit part B. I wonder if we put a little bit more meat on the bone of some of the obstacles that are out there. You've talked about a couple, um, and this these are obstacles either to getting into the profession or staying in. And I'll just recap for our audience. We talked about finance up front. You talked about that, the role of that as you, um, as you made your decision. How do we get people more information so that they are making uh, good and informed decisions? 
navigating the application process. Uh, you know, it sounds like you, you know, you had some people to help in that, but these can be, you know, it's, it, it can be very tough. Last thing for our audience, and you've heard John and I talk about this before, this is, you know, the imposter syndrome, right? And so um, if you've not been in a law school, if you've not been in a law firm, um, it's hard to imagine that you don't feel a little uh, a little out of place. So I don't expect you to answer all of those, but I wonder, you know, again, A, how do we honor and uplift and relate to the experiences and, and be able to mentor other Native American lawyers in a in a law firm when, when the numbers are small? Uh, and then two, um, how do we think about some of these factors that could be, um, you know, gatekeepers and wondering if you have any thoughts uh, of how we might address them? Sure. So I think I'll start just with the obstacles, um, some additional obstacles. A lot of us have family obligations because of that extended kinship system. There are some family obligations. Again, like myself, I could only apply to law schools in Oklahoma. That's what I had to do. And, and it worked out well. Um, but there's there's some limitation there on what we can do. And, and those go back to financial. It could be spiritual, cultural things that we have to get back to our homelands for. Um, and that being said, location is is huge in the aspect of us being very connected to the land that we grew up on, that we're from. Um, and so being away can add to that isolation that you're talking about and the invisibility piece um, as far as people not really understanding, like, I mean, why do you miss home? Even when I was a military spouse, people are like, you love Oklahoma? Why? Like, why is it so great? Well, it's the ancestral territory of the Wichita people. All of my ancestors, the blood of my ancestors is in that land. So I have a connection there. So really helping folks to find a law school that um, the, where the location is okay with their spirit and their family obligations. Um, so I think those are, are a couple of other things. And the support systems that exist beyond the law school. So for instance, even at an undergrad level, when my daughter was looking at school, she was a, a, an athlete. And so she looked at some schools based on athletics and academics. Ultimately, her choice came down to finances. She got a, a full ride academic scholarship, but also the Native American community that exists in the university that she she has chosen uh, because she knew she needed that support and that was going to help her be successful in school. So I think, um, you know, as for the how we can uplift when the numbers are low in big firms, I think the effort that we make in bringing others in, right, and that is going to help to not create that feeling of being a token. Um, like, and here's our Native American partner, right, or, or, or associate. And what do you think about Native American Heritage Month? I think we can definitely highlight people, but also bringing others in so they don't have to be the voice. And also acknowledging that there are over 570 federally recognized tribes in the United States. So as I sit here as a Wichita, Kiowa, Caddo adopted Oglala woman, I cannot speak for the Navajo Nation or their particular, you know, so, so really understanding the diversity uh, that exists within Indian country at big firms can be helpful in fighting any stigma of tokenization or being the voice of all people. I appreciate that, especially, in, and I'm sure we're going to explore it when we when we get to our talk back, when we bring my Keisha in and, and with John. Uh, I think you've really raised some issues, right? And and being aware, we say this in, in, in all the months, right? African-American month, uh, Hispanic month, uh, LGBTQ plus. How do we lift up all of the diversity all year long uh, versus just uh, just a specific month? 
As we transition to the uh, playback, I want to take us through a little bit more of a uh, whimsical, you know, uh, segment of our show, and that is talking about our pet peeves. And my case, we're going to bring you in starting starting here, but we'll let Tasha go first if she already has a pet peeve uh, or whoever's ready. And this is just a, a chance for our audience to get to know a little bit of a, a softer, maybe funnier side of us. So, Tasha, are you uh, are you ready, or do you need a minute? No, that's fine. Um, it's been extremely snowy and icy here and so my current pet peeve is like could you please take off your snow boots at the door and like not go through the house with them right and then be like oh i'm gonna and i have a 16 year old so there's that and then dogs who don't even have snow boots so yes and there have been turkeys in my yard because i live in the country they're just they taunt me every day and it's like i don't know so that's another one uh, they're they're showing up early for uh, for Thursday. <laughs> uh, thank you, Tasha. Mikeisha. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably eccentric anyway, so maybe I have a thousand pet peeves. But the one that has me uh, today, I actually sent it sent an article around to my team. It's uh, it was called uh, something like office jargon, and it's uh, a synopsis of buzzwords that different organizations use those buzzwords that become a part of the fabric of those organizations. So some of the phrases on that list, which are my pet peeves, um, and my team knows this, uh, reach out. I'm going to reach out to you. I'm I'm emailing you to reach out. I don't know what that is. Circle back is another one that just sends me to the (laughs) moon. I love it. Um, I'm going to circle back and I'm thinking, how does that, how does that even work? Revert Sorry. back is another one. So maybe it's any the word back in it. And uh, they had socialize, but I actually like socialize. I think that works. I'm going to socialize an idea. I think there's a social aspect to taking an idea and moving it forward in an organization. So for me, it's it's office jargon and buzzwords week. I, I, I love that as, as we transition to John, um, which you'll know uh, from your faithful listening of our, our podcast. Uh, I love people with uh, with pet peeves. So, you know, the more, the better. And thank you for sharing those. Uh, and, and now over to John. Well, since I hate people with pet peeves, I don't hate people with pet peeves. I hate Um, and have I can never think of one Um, and I I forgot actually because I blocked this from my mind I forgot we had to do this so um, 20th time (laughs) I know but I totally (laughs) forgot because I keep thinking finally did my last pet peeve because I don't have any new ones Um, so I'm gonna since I have to do one it's probably a rerun but I can't remember which is the time between ending one segment on uh, Netflix or, <laughs> or and the next one, I don't remember whether we had that one. I cannot work the I can't work the remote quickly enough, so I can't get out of it. And the problem is, I'm either stuck now because I feel committed to watch the next episode, which is exactly the purpose, or I I don't know how to turn it off and it's running. And when I go back in, I'm like three episodes behind because it's been <laughs> yeah. running after like, I because t- I panic. And I just turn the remote off and the thing's going on its own. So I don't even understand, by the way, how these TVs, I mean, I don't really believe that they can record anything when you don't have the TV on anyway. I don't understand that. How can it possibly be when you can't see it that it's recording? But in any case, that's my uh, that's my artificial repeated 
pet peeve. Yes, uh, te- technology uh, does exist, <laughs> despite John's <laughs> protestations <laughs> to the office. Um, you know, so like we said uh, in the opening, even sports, and so of course I'm going to return to sports for my pet peeve, my once uh, proud franchise uh, that I have devoted, um, you know, many hours and most of my life to the. I was going to say the Oakland Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, who have had to travel to to see twice this year that are beyond futile. Uh, so my pet peeves are my energy, the emotional baggage, the money that I'm sprinkling <laughs> to see these guys. And, and even when they have gigantic leads, they can't seem to close it out. All right. So uh, I will hop off of my soapbox, but um, I'm, I'm very traumatized and uh, ex- exercised over this. I want to thank you, uh, give a thank you to our guest, or actually on behalf of John and myself, Tasha. It was just fantastic having you today. Um, you gave us great insight. We're going to welcome in now Mikeisha uh, Anderson-Jones, who's the chief, as John said at the open, the chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer of Millbank. Mikeisha received her JD from Rutgers University Law School and her bachelor's from Smith College. She is a certified diversity professional um, prior to joining Millbank. She served as Vice President of Global Inclusion and Diversity at American Express. Mykesha, thank you for being here. Well, Mykesha, I think, um, so hearing the conversation, how are you struck as you know a leader amongst whose responsibilities are to drive diversity, equity, and inclusion? I think I had a mixed reaction um, to what I heard. The first was um, an overwhelming sense of, of gratitude for the, the learning and the, the sharing um, of culture and cultural sensitivities. And then at the other end of that, perhaps I was less struck by some of the similarities that I heard around the challenges that uh, Native Americans or Indigenous Americans have faced or experienced in the legal community or trying to find access into the community. So I think both of those things exist at the same time. John, um, any initial thoughts from you? Well, first of all, I thought it was... um extremely educational and in an area where education is critical because uh, just too few lawyers in my world are familiar with these issues in the slightest. And that's Mm -hmm. a problem with them. That's not a problem with the Native American community. But But the fact that so few of us understand what needs to be done and how you could do it effectively. And when Tasha said, for example, well, even the law schools that would potentially connect with them need to have a relationship in some Mm. way to geography for them or some other uh, feeling, spiritual connection. Well, you know, that's that's something that then requires, if that's the case for a lot of people, then that's something that requires a focus of emphasis. You know, it's not going to be the same for every law school in the country. There has to be an intentionality about how we're going to go about this if we're going to get from, I mean, I was struck by 0.3% admitted to law schools are mm. Native American. I mean, that's such a tiny percentage. 2% of the population and 0.3%. So it's a, a fraction of the total population that that's um, getting into law, that's pursuing and getting into law school. So that's why I asked the question, you know, can those of us who haven't been particularly educated about this in the past get involved by doing the mentoring? Because I suspect there's a lot of young lawyers 
and not, not even just young lawyers who would be willing to do that. We need to create those connections, I think, for people. And then taking that just one step further, I think I heard you say that it's at 0.18%, 0.18% of associates and partners in, in law firms are also Native American. And as we have discussions about the importance of, of representation um, in whether it's a corporation, a law firm, whatever it is, and, and, and representation uh, all throughout an organization, including at the top, I don't know what 0.18% actually feels like or actually looks like it's just such an incredibly small percent right and you know you have some people i wonder if they even raise their hands and say oh this is this is my background it's you know john you um tasha we're both talking about you know some of the similarities that we see uh you know native american black she talked about her her parents and i will think back to my grandmother or sorry my great-grandmother who's 100% Cherokee, marrying my great-grandfather, who's an African-American. And I think that there's a lot of similar experiences. And so I think as a uh, Black American who's you know, a leader or tries to be a leader in this industry, and though we want to see more representation, maybe there's some lessons that we could learn. I think what I'm struck by the most, and in my case, I think you, you were hitting on this, but I'll underscore, um, and that's culture. I've been, you know, sort of fortunate um, working with, uh, with, at least in the board capacity, working with uh, uh, Tasha and others at Friends. And we had a teaching session that she did with another Native American woman. And you could just feel the passion. You could feel the energy. You could feel the spirit. And I, and I wonder, and this is going to be a question for you, Mikeisha, it strikes me that it's a, it is a cultural thing. And we talk about diversity and really where, where we want to be writ large, it's having a true place of belonging, right? Sure. For everybody, regardless of where they come from. I wonder, uh, as a leader, going back to you as a leader in the law firm, either what are some things that are already happening or what more can we do? And, and maybe John too, uh, you know, having been in, in firm leadership for as long as he uh, was at Sherman, what can we do to be more culturally uh, sensitive and in our awareness? Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we strike the right balance and not tokenizing people at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think there are multiple layers to that question. So I'm going to attack them in this order. So the, the first piece is, about the, the the diverse perspective and the diverse background and the impact that Native Americans could bring to the legal field. Just the, the cultural richness and the impact of the history and their perspective, whether it's on ESG or DEI or any of the other acronyms are just ways in which folks interact in an organization. Um, all of that seems like it could be incredibly positive. But in addition to that, Tasha spoke a little bit about it, which is looking at your pipelining efforts, looking at um, early access to students. And I think in addition to that, it's not just early access or that end of the spectrum. It's also finding ways to incorporate Native American lawyers into the middle and upper echelons of the firm, incorporating the perspective of Native American lawyers or allies or other well-educated folks who have some level of expertise um, into whether it's cultural heritage moments or celebrations like Native American Month, but really throughout the year, and thinking about how you define 
an organization's inclusion. That could even mean just bringing in speakers and teachers into your regular discussion and your regular business cadence. Um, all of those things, I think, would be, um, again, have a have positive impact and, and be a benefit for an organization broadly. So, John, um, as a, whatever hat you want to wear, but I'll just ask you as, as somebody who used to sit on, you know, sort of the policy committee at a, a very major law firm, how does this how does this strike you? And how can we be more uplifting from a cultural perspective? Well, I think, as I was saying before, I think there's an educational part of this that this is a start of that isn't happening in law firms, at least in the Northeast where I'm from. You know, I, I just, I'm not aware. And Mykesha, you might have a different perspective. I don't think the educational process is anywhere near where it needs to be. And the sort of bilateral relationships that need to be developed to get that 0.18% up to be more reflective of the general population or more is there in any way, and in, in, at least not in the world I'm exposed to. So I think that's got to start happening. Um, and I liked what Mykesha said about having speakers come in, because I think the speakers would relate to a lot of people. I think people would be very interested in learning what they didn't know. Um, the other thing that Tasha said that connected with me, um, she said, you know, for her, she made the choice not to go into a law firm and to go into public interest law. And that that's uh, a career choice that a number of people who come from marginalized backgrounds often feel they want to make. I think law firms could attract a lot more of those people if they can convince them that there's a way to harmonize those values, um, that they're not giving up on those efforts. In fact, you know, you and I talk about this a lot, Brian, that there's people that actually a lot of a lot of organizations in the public interest field want to see people with big law background before they hire them. Um, yeah. So go ahead, Mikeisha. Yeah. To that point, you just, you know, you lit my hair on fire on that one, which is that in the work of law firms, there is certainly an opportunity. I think two opportunities. One, it's 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 the practice of law in that space whether around land use, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also the opportunity to drive change in the community and sustain the community through pro bono efforts. And so that may be a space where law firms are not necessarily focusing their attention now. And even if they do not have a practice in that particular space, there may be an opportunity to partner with organizations that do. And that, that could have an impact on the community, on economics, on land, on environmental change, on, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. So that may be another option that folks are not necessarily thinking about. And you make a good point because the way I was able to harmonize it personally for myself, having been a law student in the um, in the late seventies, which was uh, you know sort of a I don't know what you'd call it, but a anti dark ages anti that would be one way to put it. That would be <laughs> that would be fair. Um, <laughs> the pre technology generation, yeah, that, right. That, that, but what I was going to say is, you know, it was an anti big law, big corporate type world, right? And the way I was able to harmonize it was through doing all sorts of pro bono things. First, with your sweat equity, which is working on pro bono matters, and uh, ultimately 
as you become more older and more prominent, you get involved in boards and you can make a big difference to the extent you are, you know, using your clout, if you will. And, you know, so the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, LDF, various other organizations that I personally have a connection with, those were all generated from having been in a big law firm. And my for law firm, at least, was always willing to allow me to, you know, within a balanced reason to do what I wanted to do in those areas. And I think most law firms are. So anyway, I'm not sure law students always understand that. They, I think they sometimes see it as all or nothing. They don't think it is all or nothing. I agree with that 100%. And something else that you said caught my attention. You made reference to the fact that you're not aware of uh, firms in the Northeast that do this work particularly or specifically. And I think there are a few that have a, a practice, a small practice. But we also talked about early access and pipelines. And it struck me. I grew up in the Northeast and went to school in the Northeast. And I think about how we were introduced as kids to Native Americans or Indigenous Americans. I'm actually from, grew up in Massachusetts. So this is near and dear and a part of, you know, part of my upbringing 150 years ago. But the history of Native Americans started at Plymouth Rock or what we learned anyway was that it started at Plymouth Rock and it started with the pilgrims. And there's hundreds of years that predate that. And so, you know, the opportunity is to, to start that information in schools and then it would then work its way into college and university and law school and then into law firms as well. Yeah, and, and I'll maybe uh, pick up one thought, and then I want to come back, Mikeisha, and, and maybe talk a little bit about the, the pipeline. I think one of the other things that we heard from, um, that both of you picked up on, uh, that we heard from Tasha, was about allowing more experiences in the firms, you know, sort of opening up, uh, opening up themselves. And so Tasha's also made a, a point for us to further consider uh, about big law firms, you know, benefiting from attending uh, some of the Native American law events and being able to understand the culture. Because I, th I think that was one thing as um, being on the board of friends. And, and this was our first, you know, entree into, into the, uh, into tribal lands is appreciating that you have to be invited in, right? It is it is a cultural thing. And so um, understanding that, I think, can go a long way. But on, on the pipeline, um, we we talked uh, about, you know, exposure. And I'm wondering, you know, my case, and this, you can, uh, we, we just came from, you know, a conference or we're at a conference together where we were speaking, you were attending for the Association of uh, uh, Diverse Law Firm uh, Professionals. So either what you guys are doing there at Millbank or, or more generally um, in the in the industry, are there you know, sort of creative approaches that we have going in the pipeline. And, and I'll give just a little context because John and I, um, or as John alluded to earlier, we're trying to think of, okay, how, how do we, you know, and how far back do you have to go? And in our, in our research, this may surprise even you as a professional that's in this, there are about 200 different pipeline programs in our country right now geared around law school and law firms. And our numbers are still the numbers. So as John and I said, when we were trying to form the business, there's a, uh, a systemic, excuse me, uh, strategic too, but systemic approach that we might need to take. And I wonder, are there any comments um, that Tasha shared with us today that might inform the way you think about approaching pipeline? 
yes. And they probably build on or additive to some thoughts that I've had over the years and some things that we've done over the years, which is leveraging the importance of strategic partners, because I don't know that any of our organizations are expert in Native American organizations or which one is best suited for the culture of our particular firm or the goals of of a particular firm. And so developing those strategic relationships would seem an invaluable opportunity to access students across all ages and a variety of locations without law firms physically having to be there in those spaces. I think that that is a great idea. And then the other one, uh, I think Tasha alluded to this as well, was around the notion of financial hardship, financial burden. And so to the extent that firms, certainly Millbank does, um, and, and, and I'm sure other firms would as well, have scholarships for law students, as well as internships for college students, that I think those are also ways to drive inclusion within the legal community and the law firm profession as well. And and last but not least, I'm thinking about so much of this sometimes is, is, is access, awareness, access, knowledge. And so there are opportunities for firms to host, whether virtually or in person, um, a day in the life, a day in the life of a lawyer, a day in the life that speaks about the practices that we offer within the firm. And and we do that now with other uh, communities. And I could only imagine that expanding into this space as well would be welcome and create a nice relationship earlier on that can continue to develop over the years as folks get closer to decisions around law school. Well, I uh, thank you for that, Mike. And I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk internally, but it, it strikes me that as a part of our work and more generally that maybe we need to come back, John, with a podcast specifically um, devoted to pipeline and figuring out all the uh, ins and ins and outs. But, you know, Makisha, um, you know, uh, I know John's going to uh, close us here, but uh, thank you. And, and once again, um, you know, thank you, Tasha. This has been a good playback uh, to uh, the great words that we heard uh, from Tasha. Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. Brian and I thank you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving, a happy Native American Heritage Month. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. We found it stimulating and and hope it was stimulating for you and educational. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. I understand social media is some new invention thing that um, people do. And we look forward to talking to you next time. Be safe until we come up with our next pet peeves.